Our scripture reading is going to be read this morning by Martha Canis and David Green. So let's hear God's word. Our scripture reading this morning comes from 1 Kings chapter 21, verses 1 through 20. This can be found on page 563 in your pew Bibles. Sometime later, there was an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth the Jezreelite. The vineyard was in Jezreel, close to the place of Ahab, king of Samaria. Ahab said to Naboth, Let me have your vineyard to use for a vegetable garden, since it is close to my palace. In exchange, I will give you a better vineyard, or, if you prefer, I will pay you whatever it is worth. But Naboth replied, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. So so Ahab went home, sullen and angry, because Naboth the Jezreelite had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. Ahab lay in his bed, sulking, and refused to eat. His wife Jezebel came in and asked him, Why are you so sullen? Why won't you eat? The Jezreelite, Sell me your vineyard, or if you prefer, I will give you another vineyard in its place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. Is this how you act as king over Israel? Get up and eat. Cheer up. I'll get you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So, he wrote, so she wrote letters in Ahab's name, placed his seal on them, and sent them to the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city with him. In those letters she wrote, Proclaim a day of fasting, and seat Naboth in a prominent place among the people. But seat two scoundrels opposite him, and have him testify that he has cursed both God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. So the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city did as Jezebel directed in the letters she had written to them. They proclaimed a fast and seated Naboth in a prominent place among the people. Then two scoundrels came and sat opposite him and brought charges against Naboth before the people, saying, Naboth has cursed both God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death. Then they sent word to Jezebel, Naboth has been stoned and is dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned to death, she said to Ahab, Get up and take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite that he refused to sell you. He is no longer alive, but dead. When Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he got up and went down to take possession of Naboth's vineyard. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Go down and meet Ahab, king of Israel, who rules in Samaria. When he, is, he is now in Naboth's vineyard, where he has gone to take possession of it. Say to him, this is what the Lord says. Have you not murdered a man and seized his property? Then say to him, this is what the Lord says. In the place where the dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up your blood. Yes, yours. The word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be be to to God. God.
Thank you for that reading of God's Word to us this morning. Friends in Jesus Christ, I honestly don't know, but I don't think they ever produced a VeggieTale video about Naboth and his vineyard. But it seems like a natural to me. I mean, with Ahab and his quest to grow rutabagas and all, it seems the idea never sprouted. That was in loving memory of Brandon Hahn. <clears throat> but I suppose it might have something to do, too, with the storyline itself. I mean, this account isn't, you know, filled with the intrigue of a, of a fiery furnace and Daniel's three friends, Rackshack and Benny. And it doesn't carry the same suspense as Dave and the giant pickle. I mean, when it comes down to it, the account that we just read is really simply a story about eminent domain. Eminent domain refers to a government's right to, to take private property or something or for something it deems will benefit the government or the public as a whole. Uh, for instance, a few years ago, Wisconsin government wanted Foxconn to build a massive manufacturing plant down in the Kenosha area, and there were some residents who didn't want to be displaced for a factory, and so local governments employed eminent domain tactics to get the land that they wanted. And this sort of thing happens often, doesn't it? It happens frequently. We read it in the newspaper. So-and-so had to give up their house or their business place because of eminent domain. But this sort of thing has also been going on a long, long time. And thus the story of Ahab and Naboth. Here in our text, Ahab spies a piece of land that he would like to use for a vegetable garden. Now, what could be more innocent, really, than that? I mean, what could be a more wholesome hobby for a king than growing vegetables? And, and you know what they say about real estate, right? It's all about location, location, location. Naboth's vineyard was right next to the king's palace. I mean, what could be more convenient than that for Ahab? If he wanted to, or if he wanted to take a little break from, from fielding IRS exemption requests, he could walk outside on a warm spring evening and pull some weeds right across the street. Ahab wanted that vineyard. And you know what? I'm a little sympathetic to Ahab. And you probably are too. I mean, Ahab makes what I think is a pretty fair offer in this text. I'll give you a better vineyard for this one, or if you don't like that, I'll give you cash. Name your price, Naboth. Which, coming from a king, generally known to have fairly deep pockets, I mean, this sounds like a pretty good deal to me. In fact, Ahab sounds like the more reasonable party of the two. It's Naboth, I think, who comes off in this story like a bit of a fool, a stubborn fool. I mean, think about it. What would you have done in Naboth's place? In a way, this is the chance of a lifetime. This is his shot at the lottery. I mean, he actually owns something that is wanted by the king. 
I'd be picturing myself in a new condo on the Mediterranean shore. Naboth just doesn't seem to have any imagination in this text. He can't seem to recognize a gift horse when it bites him in the mouth. So, Ahab does all he can do. He does what governments have done for thousands of years. He, he takes Naboth's land, eminent domain. End of story. Not very surprising, not very gripping. No wonder it's not the subject of a Veggie Tale video. There's just one thing that makes me question that take on this story, and that is God's anger. God is mad. Very few times in the Bible do we find as detailed a description of the punishment that God is about to hand out. On this very plot of land, he said, dogs will lick up your blood, Ahab. And while we're on the subject, dogs are going to devour your wife and most of your family. And what the dogs don't eat, the birds actually will. And besides that, this is going to be the end of your royal line. I'm through with you. Verse 25 sums it up. Never was there a man like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel, his wife. He behaved in the vilest manner. God was ticked. You see, friends, this isn't just a story about eminent domain as much as it's a story about sin. And not just individual sins. It's about the character, the complexity, the consequence of sin. There are, there are two ways, I think, that, that we tend to look at sin. One looks at individual sins and we compare them to one another and try to gauge their severity, right? We say, well, this sin I think is a little worse than this one, which is a little worse than this one. Dante does that in his Inferno. He travels through the nine concentric circles of hell, sort of making his way closer and closer to the center. And as he does, as he gets closer to the center, he meets more and more of those who have committed more condemnable crimes. And so out there in those furthest circles from the center, he meets the lustful and the gluttonous. But as he gets closer to the middle, he meets the violent and the fraudulent and the treacherous. And that's, that's one way of, of looking at sin, and in its own way, it's very accurate. But there is another way, and that's to see the will of God as one piece of fabric and anything that pokes a hole in that fabric is sin it's the breaking of God's will it's the breaking of his commands in other words when God gives us the ten commandments the idea isn't that well if we keep seven of them we'll still get a passing grade it's not the idea breaking one commandment breaks the entire law of God. It vandalizes what God intended. And it simply leads to more and more and more sin. You see, there are no solo sins. 
One sin always triggers another. If you steal something, the next thing you do is lie to cover it up. Sins come in groups. They're like Lay's potato chips. Once you eat one, you can't stop. And that's because what you've done is you've replaced, in that moment of sin, you've replaced God as the leader of your life and you've put yourself in charge and you've set off in a direction that now you want to go but God never intended you to go. A path toward destruction. John Timmer uses the example from from years ago. You may remember this time when, when someone actually took a knife and they stabbed one of Rembrandt's most famous paintings. Well, when something like that happens, you don't say, well, fortunately, he only put one hole in the thing. No, you say he desecrated the entire painting. One sin desecrates the entire will of God. And that's the story of Naboth. Naboth is a story of how small things very quickly become big things. We know this. Let me ask you a question. How many times have you heard experts talk about creating passwords for your computers and things like that and how, how you ought to go about creating passwords? You know what they say, right? Create a password that you can remember but that only you can remember. Don't make it too easy like Peter1234. Don't use the same password for everything. Um, don't store your passwords on your computer. Write them down and put them somewhere in a place that you can remember where they are. How many times have you heard just plain advice like that and ignored it completely? Why? Because it's a little thing and you can't be bothered with little things in the moment, right? There's so much to do. Maybe you've heard the story about Stephen Thomas recently. Thomas is a software developer, <clears throat> and about 10 years ago, a little longer, um, he did a lot of volunteer work in the development of Bitcoin. And about 10 years ago, he actually put a video together to help explain how Bitcoin works, the technology behind it, because people like me really don't grasp the whole concept right? So we need it. He put a video like that together, and actually he, um, he won a bounty um, for that video, okay? He won about 7,000 Bitcoin at the time, which then wasn't really worth very much, so he put it into his digital wallet to store it for later sometime when he actually might need it. Well, the value of Bitcoin started to go up, so he thought, well, maybe it's time I cash it in. To make a long story short, a couple of hard drive failures left him with one backup hard drive which could still access his digital wallet. Only he forgot the password to that hard drive. To make matters worse, it was the kind of hard drive that you can enter in your password ten times. And if you don't get it right in those 10 tries, your whole hard drive gets erased. He's tried eight times. He has two left. 
and he can't remember his password. He said, I remember writing it down and maybe putting it in my wallet, my real wallet, but it's not there. Last week, his Bitcoin was worth about $360 million. Small things have a way of becoming big things. And small sins have a way of becoming bigger sins. If you had to judge, what would you say is the worst sin that's committed in this text? Let's, let's maybe just run through them a minute, okay? Um, for one, you've got covetousness, right? We said Ahab really wants Naboth's vineyard. In fact, he wants it so badly, you know, he can see himself um, standing with his, his blue ribbon tomatoes at the Jezreel County Fair. He wants that vineyard, covetousness. There's also his angry sulking because he doesn't get his way. Now, please don't take any offense, teenagers, but it's like someone told him he couldn't have the car on Friday night, and he's thinking, if I'm going to be miserable, I'm going to make everyone else's life miserable as well. But there are more sins also. How about the collusion of the elders and the nobles with Jezebel in her plot to defame Naboth? I mean, the two scoundrels did the real dirty work, but they couldn't have done it without their friends in high places. And then, of course, there's the actual murder of Naboth itself. But, but who do you really blame for that? Do you blame Ahab for turning a blind eye, just sort of setting the process in motion? Do you blame Jezebel for orchestrating the whole thing? Maybe the local city council who was simply currying favor with the queen. You could blame the actual scoundrels who did perjure themselves and threw the first stones. There's plenty of blame to go around. Plenty of blame. But I think there's something deeper going on here. This isn't about which sin is worse. This is about the whole painting being desecrated. Let's, let's look a little bit closer at Naboth. Naboth has one line in this entire story. He's the subject of, of one sentence. Otherwise, he's always the object, right? He's a pawn. He's acted upon by others. But he has this one line, and this is it. The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. Now, I think when you and I hear that line, what we hear is an idiom. What we hear is, God forbid, or heaven forbid, that I should give you my vineyard. What we hear is, I sure hope that I would never sell you my vineyard. But Naboth isn't speaking an idiom here. Naboth is, is speaking literally. He's literally saying, God forbid me to sell you this land. And he's referring to Leviticus 25, verse 23. 
The land must not be sold permanently, because the land is mine, and you are but aliens and my tenants. The land is God's, and you must not sell it. Now, what that means is that God gave Israel the promised land, the people of Israel, he gave the promised land. And it didn't come to them as some commodity that could be bought and sold. It came as an inheritance. God was the owner and he gave it to his people. And God wanted all of the people, rich and poor, skilled and unskilled, all of them alike, to have a piece of the pie. The land was his gift. And it wasn't based on capabilities. It wasn't based on income or favoritism. God provided an inheritance for each of his children. And that piece of land was always to remain in that tribe, in that clan, in that family. Always. And so what Naboth is pointing out to Ahab here is that he would be breaking the law of God if he gave this land to Ahab. It would be like giving up his literal place in the literal kingdom of God. Israel was not to be a place where you were born either a have or a have not. The intention was for every Israelite to be born a have to be born with an inheritance in the kingdom of God. And that's what Ahab was moping about. This wasn't just Naboth's decision. This was God's decision. Ahab was up against God here. He was confronted by the law of God, and he wasn't sure that he really wanted to take on God directly. But it was a different story with Jezebel. You see, Jezebel didn't grow up with Yahweh being a part of her story. And so Jezebel wasn't worried about this God. She didn't care about his law. Yahweh, I said, wasn't a part of her story. He was just an idiom in her mind. And this is where I think we need to revisit that whole vegetable garden. Okay? And I love Hebrew storytellers for this kind of thing. Just ask yourself, maybe you already have, doesn't it seem a little strange that Ahab would want his own vegetable garden? I mean, doesn't it seem a little odd that the king would want to be out there with his own garden weasel turning over the soil? I mean, even if he had his own rototiller, it still seems like a bit of a reach that Ahab would be out there gardening. So I think there might be something more going on here. And I think what's happening is that the author, as throughout these stories, is pointing us back to Moses. One vegetable garden is intended to remind us of another vegetable garden. When Moses was preparing the people to enter into the promised land, one of the things he said to them was this, the land you are entering to take over 
is not like the land of Egypt from which you have come, where you planted your seed and irrigated it by foot as in a vegetable garden. In Moses' mind and in his sermon in Deuteronomy, Egypt was a vegetable garden. Egypt was a place where you tilled, you planted, you irrigated, but you never got to enjoy the harvest. Egypt was a land of slavery. Egypt was a land of false gods. Egypt was a land where kings and queens did whatever they wanted. In comparison, the most oft-used metaphor for the promised land was a vineyard. A vineyard. A vineyard planted by God, a place where fruits grow freely and there's enough for everyone. And if you remember Isaiah 5, it was a vineyard where the vines would produce justice and righteousness for everyone. The accusation that's thrown out here is that Ahab is turning Israel back into Egypt. That he's turning it into a place that only the powerful and the wealthy can enjoy. Where only the owners and the masters find shalom. He's turning it into a place where people like Naboth are ground into the dirt and nobody really cares. The Lord forbid that Ahab should do such a thing. He really did. So how did it happen, you ask? Well, there's one little sin that we didn't mention earlier. Very, very small. We tend to overlook it. But God was very clear about it. Ahab married a foreign wife. He married Jezebel. And while that move was politically astute, what it did is it poked a hole in the canvas. And in through that hole came what? Baal worship. And in through that hole came all of the values of Sidon, all of the values of Egypt. You see, in Sidon, what the king wants, the king gets. And in Sidon, the king doesn't ask, the king takes. And in Sidon, when the king says, jump, you jump, and then you ask later how high. In Sidon, no one cares what the Lord forbids. In Sidon, the elders and the nobles have no integrity. They hold the party line. They can't be bothered with the high ideals of a vineyard. In Sidon, a vegetable garden is always the default mode. Ahab poked a hole in the canvas and in 
toward Sidon. It all began with a marriage. That was Ahab's root sin. But it all went downhill from there. And that's why God was so angry. It's not like there's any one particular sin that God just couldn't get past. Rather, God sees the big picture, and he sees the big picture being vandalized. You see, in God's big picture, he is moving all of history out of Egypt and into the promised land. God is moving all of history away from slavery and into freedom, freedom in Jesus Christ. He's moving all things away from vegetables, away from irrigation, and he's turning water into wine. The big picture, God has planted a vineyard and his intent is that that vineyard will take over the the earth. Grapes of justice and righteousness for everyone. But anytime we sin, my friends, no matter what that sin is, we poke a hole right through that beautiful canvas. We vandalize the entire picture of what God wants. We say, I want what's best for me. And Naboth and his friends can fend for themselves. Anytime we sin, we move things back in the direction of the vegetable garden. And friends, you know what scares me most about this text? What scares me most is what I said earlier. That when you first read this story, Ahab sounds like the reasonable one. And what that means is I'm not repulsed by him. I'm not sickened by his suggestion. What scares me is I don't shout with Naboth, God forbid that you should turn this vineyard into a vegetable garden. I don't because I've grown used to the vegetable garden. I've been desensitized by it. I think that all the world is a vegetable garden. We just have to learn how to live in it. I don't shout, God forbid that you should devalue Naboth. God forbid that you should displace him from the kingdom of God. I don't shout that. But Jesus did. Jesus shouted, God forbid, to Ahab. The exact language he used was, I thirst. Jesus didn't just thirst for water on that cross. He thirsted for wine. He thirsted for a vineyard. He thirsted for a place where Naboth would always have an inheritance and no one would ever take it away. Blessed are the Naboths, he said, for they shall keep their inheritance. 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the vineyard. Ahab and the like have always tried to convince us otherwise. Blessed are the aggressive, they say. Blessed are the assertive. Blessed are the competitive, the pushy, the insistent. But Jesus keeps saying, no, Ahab. No, Jezebel. God forbid. Jesus refused to poke a hole in that canvas. He was faithful unto death. Jesus resisted and Jesus was stepped on, and Jesus was ground into the earth, and Jesus was ground into the earth in our place so that you and I would always have a place in the vineyard, so that place would never be taken away. Jesus said, no, no, you will not violate this portrait, Ahab, nor anyone like you. Still, there's one last part of this story that's really hard for me to understand. I mean, I get God's anger. I get his righteous wrath. I get his resolve to not let the Ahabs of this world deprive the Naboths of what God meant for them to have. I get God's justice. What I don't get are verses 27 and 28. We didn't read them this morning. They say this, When Ahab heard Elijah's words, he tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth and fasted. And then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, and he said, because Ahab has humbled himself, I will not bring this disaster in his day. That's the part I can't understand. God relented. God relented. God had mercy. How do you show mercy to this guy? then I tried to place myself in this story. And I tried to place you in this story as well. Where would you put yourself? There aren't many Ahabs among us. I mean, maybe some. But not many of us have the power or the influence to move the pieces on the chessboard, especially the pieces that don't want to be moved. Likewise, at least in this congregation, not many of us are Naboths, not true Naboths, pawns, completely helpless against the manipulations of the strong. You know where I see myself? In the elders and the nobles of the town. 
constantly pressured by the powers of the world to perjure myself. Constantly pressured to let go of God's portrait of the vineyard, to forget about Naboth, and to just do what's best for me. I'm constantly under the pressure to do Jezebel's bidding. And I don't know about you, but so often I do just that. And that's when I'm so glad for the end of this story. And I'm so glad that when Jesus went to the cross, he wasn't compelled there just by the justice of God. But he was also compelled by the mercy of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord God, we confess confess this morning our own compliance with Ahab and with Jezebel and trying to revert the goodness of your kingdom, the goodness of your vineyard back into a vegetable garden. And Lord, we can make all sorts of excuses like we've grown up in the vegetable garden and its ways are the only ways that we know, but Lord, Truth is, those are just excuses because you have placed your Holy Spirit in us. And you have borne within us the fruit of your Spirit, the fruit of that vineyard. Love, joy, and peace, patience, and kindness, and goodness, and self-control, and all the wonderful fruits that you desire to see in that vineyard. Justice and righteousness that everyone can enjoy, everyone to have an inheritance. But Lord, we do deceive ourselves that this one time of, of seeking our own will, this one time of protecting ourselves, and Lord, we deceive ourselves that really we're not destroying the whole picture. And so we ask for your forgiveness and we ask for your mercy. And that just as you were merciful to Ahab, we pray that you would be merciful to us. And Lord, in Jesus' cross, we have seen that indeed your mercy reigns. We saw your mercy manifest in that place, right alongside of your justice. And for that, we praise you. And we worship you. You are God. We are not. May it always be that way. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.